You're listening to Senior Rx Radio, brought to you by ASCP. Visit us online at ascp.com/podcasts. ASCP: Empowering Pharmacists, Transforming Aging. Welcome to Senior Rx Radio. This is Dr. Jaron Stout, and today is a very exciting day and uh, also uh, a sad day for me as well. It's time to pass the torch to some new co-hosts at Senior Rx Radio. And so allow me to introduce Dr. Michelle Lamb and Dr. Veronica Riera Gilly. And uh, I'm thrilled I've had them on this show before. And so the listeners should already be familiar with you guys, but let's uh, officially pass the torch to you guys to take on this awesome podcast and a great audience. Thank you, Jaron. Good morning. It is such a pleasure to record here from the ASCP annual meeting. Thank you for bringing us into the fold and and trusting us with a program that you've really helped develop. Yeah. Uh, My name again is Michelle Lamb. I am one of the new co-hosts of Senior Rx Radio, and I am an independent pharmacy consultant out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and an ASCP fangirl. So honored to share some wonderful information with our listeners. Thank you, Michelle. I'm Veronica Riera Gilly, a holistic and functional medicine pharmacist, and I hail out of Sherman, Texas. I have an independent consulting practice. And how far is that from San Antonio? Five and a half hours. Five and a half hours. So what city is that closest to, Sherman, Texas? Hour north of Dallas. Hour north of Dallas. Okay. I don't know Texas very well, so... You're originally from Texas, right, Michelle? I am. I am a Houston girl. Okay. Honestly, there's something about being back in my home state. I don't know if it's the smell of the cedar or the humidity, but it it feels like home and I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, that's awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm happy, like you said, I'm glad that you guys are excited to take this on because like things have uh, gotten very, very, very busy for me, very overwhelming. And uh, I just decided after doing this for three years, it's been such an awesome ride, but it's time to pass the torch to some awesome people that are as passionate as I am about pharmacy. So I'm glad to have you guys taking it on. And I'm excited for you. Thanks. Well, we're going to kind of turn the tables on it. All right. And we're going to interview you. All right. Bring it on. I'd love to share with our listeners a little bit about your background. Okay. You are the founder and CEO of Collaborative Pharmacy Consulting, the most progressive and innovative pharmacy consulting practice in the country. Self-proclaimed, but true. (laughs) Self-proclaimed. The first consulting service to offer enhanced patient care through collaborative practice agreements and incident to services with physicians and nursing facilities. You are also the founder and leader of a national coalition to improve regulations to help promote a more collaborative, team-based approach to patient care and nursing facilities. You are highly involved with ASCP as the chairperson for the QIP committee, Utah chapter president, and I'm going to insert former co-host of Senior Rx Radio and the 2021 recipient of the Armin Neal Award for Innovation. Well done, Jerry. Yes, thank you very much. I guess there should be an update on that as well. You said former Senior Rx co-host, but also I'm the former QIP chair as well, because that's another thing I had to step down from, because it says in that bio that I am the new head of a a national coalition, which is going to take up some time, so I had to kind of step back from a couple of other things. So, But it is a new coalition. Uh, We just officially launched about a month ago. We haven't truly officially named it yet, so I don't know if I dare say what name we're leaning towards right now, but... 
I'll go ahead and do it. We are leaning towards the name of a collaborative coalition of innovative physicians and pharmacists because we have ASCP is on board. Uh, we have uh, the American Medical Directors Association that has expressed support to it as well. We have GAPS Health, which is a national medical group giving support to the coalition. And we also have a local physician that I work with named Dr. Gregory Baird, who is very involved and, and supportive of the coalition as well. Uh, we have uh, Dr. Nikki Brandt as, uh, on the executive committee, as well as several other awesome people on the uh, steering committee. Like, uh, man, I if I start naming names, I might miss a few. So I, I don't know if I dare start naming names. But we have a, a great cast of ASCP and physician involvement in this coalition. And, uh, and uh, because I'm vain, you know, I had to add my company name as, as part of the coalition, this collaborative coalition. So, but that's also because I'm a huge, huge believer in a collaboration among professionals. And the more we work as a team in healthcare, the more effective we're going to be and the better outcomes we're going to get. So. Why don't you tell us more about this coalition? <laughs> because there's so much I, I know that you're doing in it. And I've, I've kind of heard rumors at this meeting. So okay. uh, tell us more. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I actually, uh, I could have provided a lot more there. So when you uh, think about what happened, you know, think about 15, 20 years ago when the Farm D was officially made the required degree to become a pharmacist. What was the talk of the town? It was oh, hey, we're going to be working side by side with physicians. They're going to diagnose and we're going we're gonna to manage their meds and prescribe the appropriate meds, right? That was the talk of the town. And 20 years later, we haven't done that at all. And so to give more background, you know, provider status has always been a huge point of discussion and a huge pushing point from our profession because we feel like we deserve to be able to bill for our time, right? And when you think about what provider status is, if we were to get provider status right now, a nationwide for everyone in the profession, that would be a massive leap from where we are right now. It's not a palatable approach. That's why we're getting such a massive push and resistance from physician groups, the American Medical Association. Big associations don't want this to happen. There's a shrinking Medicare pie. And when you add 350,000 nationwide pharmacists to that, taking pieces out of it, it's going to shrink it even more. So there's obviously going to be resistance. But also, if we got provider status, tell me, what would you do with it, Michelle? Would you know what to do with it? I would not. <laughs> but I'd probably reach out to ASCP for some guidance. Right, yeah. So, and that's the problem is we as pharmacists have no idea how to bill for our time. We have no idea how to get set up with insurance companies. We have no idea how to get credentialed. And we are not geared to get credentialed and then wait up to six months for payments to start rolling in. We are, you know, every other like PAs and Ps, MDs, they're all geared and they understand that that's part of the process. We are not geared that way, unless you open up your own pharmacy, right? You have to wait for, to build a practice. But once you get credentialed, you have to wait for those payments to start rolling in. We've had tools in our toolkit for ages, for years, decades that we just haven't utilized. So for years, we've had these opportunities to prove that we are, you know, 
useful and helpful and effective providers, but we haven't utilized them. So maybe it's because I'm totally against, you know, uh, I, I just, I'm not the type of person who feels entitled. I don't ask for something without earning it. Maybe that's just the way I'm wired, but I don't feel comfortable saying, give me provider status right now without me doing something first to show that it's a valuable asset that should be done. And so the tools that are in our toolkit that we're not utilizing are, first of all, like you talked in my bio, collaborative practice agreements. And that's the first thing. We've had this available to us for ages. When I first started doing it, the concept was, how about consultants stop showing up into nursing homes and providing insight on stuff that is a potential problem? If Rather than us identifying a potential problem, why don't we show up and fix problems, right? There's way more value in that for the nursing homes. They're going to be a lot more appreciative when we come in and help them fix problems rather than just point to one and say, here's a problem that I think might be a problem. You guys fix it and I'm going to go home, right? So, and that's historically what we've done. And that's why nursing homes don't really appreciate what we're bringing to the table. And not only that, but our interpretation of that problem is lost. Like nurses don't have our perspective. They aren't going to interpret it the way we interpreted it potentially. And so they're a lot of times going to write it off when, because they don't understand why we brought it up. So this helps maintain our, our autonomy and our perspective and our interpretation of what those problems are. So that's the first step. Uh, second of all, incident two services. So now this is obviously a topic that I could spend three or four podcasts talking about because it, providing incident two services in a skilled nursing facility is a huge topic of debate when you dig through the regulations and how incident two services apply and where they apply. But when you dig deeper at the definitions and how they roll and how they, they function, you can make it work. And to simplify everyone's interpretation and how they're going to read this, this law, let me explain a couple of things. Incident two services are follow-up visits, right? So we do not diagnose. So in, there are small pockets around the country where physician clinics are delegating follow-up visits to a pharmacist that they hired. Now, this pharmacist can be a W-2 employee. It can be a 1099. doesn't matter. Either way is totally fine. And they can have these, these pharmacists manage follow-up visits and manage their chronic disease patients. And then they're left to do what they want to do, what they enjoy doing, seeing new patients and diagnosing new problems. So once again, this was our stepping stone that we should have been utilizing for years when we got the PharmD as the required degree. We should have made that so that we were doing this right away, but it isn't something we've done. So in clinics, this is obviously really easy to do because one of the requirements of this incident too is that the physician and the pharmacist have to be in the building at the same time. Obviously, this is very complicated in a skilled nursing facility, right? But when you realize that with the public health emergency, with COVID-19, these restrictions have been lightened. So now the physician doesn't have to be in the building at the same time anymore. Right now, they just have to be readily available. So it simplifies the process a lot, especially when you consider that you cannot see the same patient on the same day. So even when we showed up to the building at the same time, we had to coordinate heavily to make sure we didn't see the same patient. 
And in a clinic, you have somebody scheduling these patients to come in, so one person's assigned to one patient. So there's never any overlapping. But we had to do a lot of coordination to make sure we weren't overlapping. So there were a lot of obstacles that made it very difficult. That being said, I started this journey about five years ago. And I started with the collaborative practice agreements and then uh, started to research more and, and heard of Incident 2, that it was happening in clinics throughout the country in small areas. And I started to see the relevance in, in skilled nursing. So I reached out. I was told that if you want to start doing Incident 2 services, you should reach out to your Medicare administrative contractor, MAC. Most people just call it MAX. So that's a, an abbreviation that I'm going to make everyone very familiar with because this is very important. Will you repeat it, please? Yeah. MAC is just referred to as MAC. And what does it stand for? Medicare Administrative Contractor. Thank you. Right. So CMS delegates their administrative authority to these MACs. There's seven of them throughout the country. I was told that if I wanted to implement it, I should reach out to my local MAC and find out how they interpreted Incident 2 laws because in order to designate a follow-up visit, they have to do it to whoever they deem appropriate, which is whether it be an, MD, an NP, a PA, or a med assistant, or a nurse, yada, yada, or auxiliary personnel. So it doesn't say pharmacist anywhere in there, but it does say auxiliary personnel. And we have a letter from CMS to the American Academy of Family Physicians in 2014 that confirms that, yes, we allow pharmacists to fall under the definition of auxiliary personnel. That's step one. So we are auxiliary personnel if we have a contracted or employed relationship with that medical group. So then I, I reached out to the MAC. They could not answer my question because my question was, first of all, are you again interpret it that a pharmacist can do this in a skilled nursing facility? And they said, no, absolutely not. And I said, I understand why you're saying that but I need somebody who understands my question and understands the regulations. So can I get somebody else or push me up the ladder? I went through this through about three people. I got to the top of that Mac and they said, I don't know, I'm gonna forward you to CMS. So I'm in Salt Lake City, so they forwarded me to the CMS office in Denver, okay? Uh, when I spoke with uh, the CMS representative, they gave me some information, we exchanged our emails, and I, they said, okay, email me some links and documents of what you're, you're referring to, and I'll look over them, and then how about uh, I'll send you some stuff as well. So right after that phone call, I started an email correspondence with her. We exchanged some information that we requested, and then I read her information, and, and then I gave her my interpretation. I said, you know, it looks like Incident 2 does not apply to Medicare A patients because they receive the lump sum, the lump payments. So Incident 2 services don't really apply to that. But for the long-term care side, for the Medicare B patients, that is where it does apply. And that's where there's a lot of value for pharmacists to make an impact providing Incident 2 services in skilled nursing facilities. And I said, so if we follow all of these rules, is this something we can implement? She said, yes. So this was about five years ago. And despite that, it, I've run into just obstacle after obstacle, whether it's procedural or misunderstandings from nursing homes that felt like it was a, a liability and a risk that they didn't feel comfortable with. So for five years, I've been doing this and nobody's believed me. Nobody's taken me seriously, even though I have an email from CMS confirming that I, I interpreted it correctly. And nobody took me seriously until I met an attorney named Lee Davidian out of D.C., 
She has uh, her own firm that she, she worked with ASCP in the past. She worked, when she graduated from law school 30 years ago, she worked for ASCP as an attorney. And uh, she did that for many, many years. And then she broke off and, and did her own firm. And now she does lobbying as well as a compliance office stuff. So once I brought her on board, people finally started listening to me. Okay, so I had a corporate nurse who shut it down and said, I don't want this happening in my nursing homes. But I, that's, that's when I reached out to Lee. And I said, look, I have a situation. I want to assess my risk, right? Because I, I, I'm trying to implement this. I'm running at obstacles. I want to just assess, like, what my risk is here. And after looking over all the information I gave her, she asked me a question that kind of changed everything. She said, Jaron, do you want to assess your risk or do you want to make it happen? <laughs> and I, I was, I, it kind of blew my mind because I, I, I never thought of it from that perspective. I said, well, yeah, I want to make it happen. And so that's kind of what this, that was about a year ago. And so uh, ever since then, we've been uh, talking and, and, you know, networking to kind of build this coalition and it officially launched about a month ago. So the thing we're going to be looking for is A, we want to clarify make the general supervision change that's in place right now due to the public health emergency, we want to make that a permanent change. We want to make that so that it's an easy and scalable service. And based on Lee's uh, interactions with her CMS contacts, they want more pharmacist involvement. They want to see more pharmacists doing stuff like this. And they're actually very surprised that more pharmacists don't do collaborative practice agreements. They're surprised that more pharmacists aren't doing incident two services because these are the building blocks that they've made available to us because they want us to be more involved. And we just haven't done anything with it. Instead, we've bickered and complained that we just need provider status. So. My question to you about your coalition, is this going to turn into a database where physicians can look for pharmacists to partner with? Because there are organizations that pair nurse practitioners who are looking for a supervising physician, and they turn to these organizations to get these NPs hooked up with their physicians. So is that where your coalition is going, is to provide the service where we pair a pharmacist in every physician's office? Like every physician has their personal pharmacist to help supervise their medication decisions? That is not something we've considered and I had never even thought of that. So that is a potential avenue we could go. And if not, then I think that would be a viable option for ASCP. I don't know if I'm, if that's even a viable option for them, but either way, if it's the coalition does that or another organization, I think, yeah, that would be a very valuable thing to do that we haven't even considered yet. So, uh, yeah, yeah, we'll have to talk more about that because I, 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 I've never even heard of that. That's fascinating. So, I just got the idea as you were talking about what your organization is doing and where they're headed. And I've been in conversation with nurse practitioners in my hometown to have a collaborative practice together. Right. But she's first got to find a physician. And she's a physician who's very open to pharmacy input because that's where he struggles the most is seeing that his pulmonary patients are on multiple medications that are causing respiratory depression and it's not getting identified because not everyone's yeah. talking to each other. Yeah, because we never look at what's contributing to the problem. We only look at how to solve it with more medications, right? And we never address, or I shouldn't say never. There's some prescribers who do it, but not, not to the level that we would regardless. Even when they do do it, it's not to the same level. 
to the same level of expertise, right? So, but yeah, that that's that's awesome. I, I'm glad you brought that up for sure. So I, I'm going to have to look into that. Thanks for doing the groundwork. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to ask a question yeah. about what it looks like when you actually partner with these SNF facilities. What are you doing? Are we looking for options for de-prescribing? Are you providing vaccinations, traditional MTM and medication reviews, kind of an outcome style? What does that okay. actually look like? I'm glad you asked that because this is another, this is one of the reasons that I got some resistance from a corporate nurse is uh, she had a complaint that, hey, look, you're coming into my facility and you're billing our facility to provide consulting services. And then you're going to go and bill for patient visits. That's a conflict of interest. And I said, actually, it's not because they're two different services. And think of it from two different there's two different ways to look at this, and both of them are favorable to, to not being a conflict of interest. First of all, how do you pay a medical director? You pay them a stipend, right? To be the medical director in putting procedures, standing orders, and then they go and visit patients and bill for it. It's the exact same thing, right? And eventually, the pharmacist could do the exact same thing, right? So the pharmacist can come in, do a patient visit. Now, if I were to find an item that needs an intervention, I could hand that intervention to the physician who then could literally generate a visit out of that, that intervention. So instead of bogging them down with more paperwork and more visits, we can handle some of those visits on their behalf that they still profit from. And because when you, they have to, you know, you negotiate your contract, but you negotiate how much you're going to get paid per visit. The, I mean, so the, the visit is billed to the physician and the physician receives reimbursement and pays you a portion of that, right? So that's how it works. And this way, we're just lightening the load rather than adding to their load, but yet making them more profitable at the same time. So does that answer your question? That's helpful. All right. And also keep in mind, I've also been trying to, to branch into pharmacogenomics, right? So I'm finalizing a contract right now with a lab provider I'm trying to team up with that will allow me to provide consulting interpretation of every lab test they provide for every patient. So every time they do a lab, a, a pharmacogenomic test, I will review that test result and submit an action plan to their physician and to the patient to, to interpret it for all of them. So rather than the physician sifting through, you know, 25 pages of genomic interactions, I'll give them a brief summary of wh what we could do to simplify the process so that they don't have to sift through all of it. So are you using a particular software program for that? Not yet, because it's still kind of a preliminary thing. But I'm also looking at having these tests run on a lot of post-acute patients after they go home to kind of help streamline their medications and, and identify if anything contributed. You know, if they had a fall and they're on a med that is a potential fall risk, but then they metabolize it in a way that makes it even a higher fall risk. You know, little things like that, I think, are vastly underutilized that we need to start doing more. So uh, that's another aspect I'm looking at. And there's other aspects as well, but I don't want to bog down the whole podcast with all the intricate details. I have another question surrounding billing. Do we need any special billing software to get into this, or is that handled all through the physician's office? All through the physician's office, right? So once again, this is a great stepping stone. We don't know how to do all that stuff. And, you know, physicians don't technically either. They usually have a billing company they hire from the outside, and, and that's how it's going to be handled. But this will get our feet wet. 
this will get us familiar with how this whole process works. Because there are states that just recently got provider status, and I've spoken to some of these people who helped it happen, and they're running into more obstacles because A, pharmacists don't know what to do with it. They, they now have provider status, and they're like, okay, what does that mean, <laughs> right? So how do I bill? What billing codes do I use? What criteria has to be met to bill for these billing codes? And now they're also getting kickback or resistance, not kickback, from lab, like lab providers because they submit these NPI numbers for a lab order and they're like, you can't do that. You know, you can't order these labs or, or whatever. And that brings up a topic for another day because there's a difference between provider status versus prescribing power. And that's something that is frequently um, misunderstood. But that being said, the, the lab providers just saw that there was an NPI from a pharmacist and they immediately rejected payment, right? And so now he's having to do a lot of legwork to get these lab providers to understand that this is a provider status service that should be paid for, right? So, and that's going to create a lot of extra work for him to do before it's actually officially up and running. So once again, this gets us familiar with the process so that we, it's a stepping stone to where our, our profession needs to get eventually. So. Thank you, Jaren. Yeah. Information. I, uh, want to tease you a little bit. You received a shout out today from oh. Chad during our, our opening for the keynote speaker this morning. And again, he's recognizing some of the great work that you've done on this. If he was to recognize you again next year, where would you like to see this collaborative be one year from today? I would like to see a couple of our goals being met. And I would like to see the number of pharmacists implementing Incident 2 services in the country increase tenfold. So I would like to see 10 pharmacists doing this by next year. Okay. So I, that, I'd never thought of that, but so I'm, I'm glad you asked that because it really made me think like, what, what do I want to see in a year? But if I could get 10 pharmacists in the first year to start doing this, that would be fantastic. Right. And that's another thing that I haven't mentioned yet, just briefly, but the goals that we have are to lighten that restriction, make it permanent. And also we want to get a, an official clarification from CMS. We're going to go into CMS office, present a case to them and say, okay, this is our interpretation. We want you to clarify that A, this can be done in a skilled nursing facility for the long-term care residents who are living there in their home, because that's where it applies, and have them specify that when they say skilled nursing facilities are not applicable for institute services, that it applies to skilled patients in a nursing facility, not to the long-term care patients, right? So, so you can do it for long-term care patients, but you cannot do it for Medicare A short-term. And so once we get that official, like, public clarification, that will really open a lot of doors that are currently being log-jammed and, and, and held up for a lot of parties that I'm trying to help. Jean Abdu being one of them, she's ran into a, a few obstacles, as well as some other pharmacists that are trying to implement it as well. So, yes. So it sounds like you might be looking for 10 pharmacists that we could also follow up with next year. Yeah. If those 10 are listening today, how can they find you and learn more about your, your efforts and, and connect with you? That's a great question. So now that we've officially launched the coalition, we are now going to be looking for general members to, to provide some support. Um, we need support to help pay for the coalition because we need to build our case we need to fly some people into D.C. to stand before CMS and make this uh, an official like clarification. So 
please reach out to me or or to the coalition, Lee Davidian. You know, reach out to uh, ASCP. Uh, find me on LinkedIn. That being said, I have 17 messages on LinkedIn that I haven't read yet, so I'm going to get better at that. Reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me, jaron.stout at crxconsulting.onmicrosoft.com. Reach out to me, reach out to Lee Davidian, my attorney, and we're going we're gonna to need more general members to support this coalition if we want to make this a cause that is successful. We need a lot of support, so thank you for asking. I, I would have overlooked and forgot to ask for support from a lot of people to, to help make this happen. If you love our profession and where we want to go, this is a huge opportunity. So, Yes, thank you for all the great information. And I want to close it out with my one takeaway from this. And it's, do we want to assess our risk or do we want to make this happen? <laughs> well, what do, you, what do you want to do? We're making it happen. We're, we're it talking happen. about yes. it. We're getting our members excited about what's possible and awesome. what's coming. Yes. Thank you, Jim. And I hope, I hope everyone is excited about this. This is a huge opportunity. And, you know, just real brief, if you attended the meeting last year, you would have heard me say this already. But, and I think you talked about this as well. I think yeah. you're getting ready to share a quote with us that I've thought about for an entire year. Yes. So this has the potential to make it so that rather than having one consultant go to 15 to 20 homes once a month, this could quadruple the workforce so that one consultant goes to five to seven homes once a week. So if that sounds outrageous, I hope so, because 66% of medication-related adverse events are preventable, meaning we are not doing our job. I am offended by that number, and I hope everyone else is. We need to step up our game, and this allows us to dedicate time to make it happen. So. All right. Well, thanks, Jaron. That was great information. So I'm hearing we'll find you on LinkedIn. Yeah. And uh, you'll check those messages because I think <laughs> I will. they're going to be rolling in. Yes. All right. Yes. Thanks, Jerry. Yeah, thank you. You're listening to Senior Rx Radio, brought to you by ASCP. Visit us online at ascp.com slash podcasts. ASCP, empowering pharmacists, transforming aging.